Hello and welcome to School Growth Mastery, produced by Enrollhand, where we help schools, preschools, colleges and universities find their voice, connect with their ideal parents and grow their enrollment. We will bring on a diverse list of guests from school heads, admissions officers, marketing experts, parents and more, each with a unique insight into how you should grow your school in this changing landscape. Thank you for listening. In this episode, I'm joined by Ted Dindersmith. I'm sure you've heard of him. He is one of America's leading advocates for school change. He is the executive producer of the Most Likely to Succeed documentary, watched by millions and screened at at least a thousand community events. Ted is also the author of an inspiring book which I just finished reading and I'm recommending to everyone I meet called What School Could Be. In this book, he takes us through his journey to over 200 schools in all 50 states. On this episode, Ted and I talk about his innovation playlist, his scalable, permission-based, trust-based strategy for taking small steps to change, how to use public exhibitions as a tool for school growth, and much more. So without further ado, here's Ted. Hi, Ted. Welcome to the show. Great to be here. Ted, we're big fans here at Enroll Hand, I have to say. And we read and watch and consume a lot of your, your content. And I really want to mention, I'm going to link it in the show notes as well, your innovation playlist. This is a great push to action. So I think every school should look at it and really helpful to step-by-step step get them to start changing their school. I just shared one video I really like, the Princess Air What is School For video in our Facebook group. Oh, good. It's very emotional. But before I shared it, I got a tinge of anxiety because it's a bit controversial, a little bit, not very much. So the question is this, what about the school leader who wants to change, who wants to start going through your playlist and like sharing and creating a community discussion, but is not sure they can handle or craft a community discussion and like, and steer that discussion in, in, a, in a positive way? Yeah. What do you tell them? Well, I, you know, I come back to this, the film Most Likely to Succeed, and I've done, oh my gosh, I mean, if, I might have done a thousand community events now with that film. And so I have a pretty good handle on how communities of all type react to it. And one of the things I'll give the director, who is brilliant, Greg Whiteley, credit, is we go out of our way in the film not to say this is better or not to say this is the perfect school, you should copy it. We let people live and breathe what's going on in that school. And he actually goes out of his way to say it's too new, it's too early. This makes people nervous, you know, legislators, you know, particularly parents. Um, and we just sort of invite audiences to make up their own mind. Um, and so I think that's the first thing is that I think if you don't come at people with a preconceived notion of what's right and wrong, but just do your best to sort of inform them of the, the trade-offs and what the differences are, people will kind of appreciate and respect the fact you're inviting them to make up their own mind. In all the sessions I've done with the film, I think most people come away saying, if not all of that, I think most people come away saying, we sure want some of that for our kids, um, which has sort of led me to this whole notion of an innovation playlist, which is small steps leading to big change where you don't say everything you're doing today is bad, drop it all tomorrow and do something different, but where you say, what are some safe little steps we can take 
to start transferring more of the responsibility for the learning to the student and for connecting more of the learning to the real world. And I think with small steps, you kind of let every teacher, every school find its own level. I like the innovation playlist because it also it mirrors as a bit of a meta effect a lot of the like personal personalized learning strategies we have with playlists and you know, letting schools have choice. So you, you're letting the school leaders have choice. Uh, talking about small steps and kind of small downside, lo- lots of upside. A hypothetical example: a school leader gets this wild idea that SAT scores are not very useful. Uh, she suggests a small step like a community screening of most like to succeed or any other small step to start a discussion. And then someone, the PTO or someone shuts her down. And just like as a broader example, I think this happens. I mean, you start, a lot of people take a a step, a small step, and for some reason, it might just be unlucky, they get shut down and they stop. So what do you do there? Well, I think it's one of the reasons I turned down Netflix with the the film is I, I really pushed for people to bring their community together to watch it. You know, we've done, I think, close to 10,000 community screenings. And I think when everybody sort of is saying, wait a minute, you know, like there is a different way. And, you know, we do a really great job in the film of showing what automation's doing to routine jobs. And, and in my talks and in my books, I, I point out to many people, I point out to the places I go. That if a kid plops down in your school today and they're really good at memorizing material, replicating low-level procedures, and following instructions, I would bet a lot of money that kid makes your honor roll. And most people say, you're right, that is a kid who will make our honor roll in our school. And then I point out the obvious, which is those three things, memorizing material, replicating low-level procedures, following instructions, they're exactly what machine intelligence does instantly, perfectly, and inexpensively to for free. And so if we push our kids to get good at something that machine intelligence is excellent at, you know, and if in that push, we drive out of them their creativity, their audacity, their curiosity, you know, we're not doing justice to these kids. And I think when people, I think it's the power of the film, you know, I may have no effect ultimately on what happens in schools around the world. I I can live with that. But I, I at least think I get you know, I feel good about my strategy. I mean, I have a strategy as opposed to a lot of groups that I don't think really have thought a distribution that. strategy. Yeah, and so so a film film is far more powerful than I could be in person. And so the film is a, is a replicable resource that creates the right conditions in a school that leads people to get excited about change. And when that grumpster, which every school has its grumpsters, as well as every school has its innovators. And and the beauty of this innovation playlist is not that you come in and say everybody has to do something different. It's that the model really is which teachers here would like to try one small step and let us know how it goes. So if you're against it, all we ask is keep an open mind. You know, don't be the skunk at the garden party. But if you just think this is wrong for your kids, at least be willing to appreciate somebody who's, who's going to try something that at the beginning is a, a stinking 20-minute block of time in a month. You know, like this is not betting the farm on wholesale change. Same thing with the projects we offer. I really go to great lengths to offer suggested projects that are can be done in a couple days, you know, two class periods, three class periods. And it's really a very different message to a school. One message is, are there a few teachers who would be willing to set aside a couple days of class periods for a project? 
If you do, we're excited about that. We'd love you to do it and tell us how it went. That's a mission-based, trust-based model. It's another thing when you say, I heard about this thing called project-based learning, and so we're going to completely re-engineer everything in our school, and every teacher has to teach differently next year. Go with it. You know, I think that draws out the skeptics, the ones who, who just are so opposed to it, they, they probably unintentionally can actually act to undermine the change process. And that's why I love to say, I love the phrase, let the sprinters sprint, let the runners run, then the joggers will jog. And for those who just say, I want to stay in place, all we say is just keep an open mind. Because honestly, if we could get half the learning experience to shift in lots and lots of schools, I will take that every day of the week. That's a huge step forward so for kids. What is it that stops school or holds schools back from innovating? Because you visit so many schools, I think 200 schools in your trip. And you reference a lot of like very great shining examples in the book, but also somewhere the innovation is not happening. So what's holding them back? And I also like the Nellie May Foundation study that you reference that says 70% of the blocking points are actually not real. Yeah. Well, in my book, In What School Could Be, I talk about the fact that it's called an education system for a reason is there are all these interlocking parts. And so when one part wants to change, it's dealing with other parts that want to push it back to the way it used to be. And so, you know, in my funding, in my efforts, the talks I give, things like that, I go after the leverage points. You know, if we could change college admissions, K through 12 would change overnight. If we could get states or governments to rethink the exams they mandate or the courses they require and make those far more authentic means of Assessing kids who are doing work that matters instead of pretty mindless ways of testing kids on work that doesn't matter. If we could ship that, that would be great. Parent expectations is a big, you know, impeding factor. And, um, and I think that if you start to make some headway and they start to crumble a bit and you realize that any school can make all sorts of progress on its own, you know, you start to get excited, which I'm, I'm excited to see all the schools, all the districts, all the states, even countries stepping back and saying, wait a minute, there's a better way. And, you know, you, you take one of my favorite topics to go after is math. I mean, grade, I'd say grade seven through 12 math is best case, a waste of time and often is damaging to kids. You know, you don't use much of that math later in life, even if you're a scientist or engineer. I know, right? I'm not guessing at that. I mean, I have a PhD in math modeling from Stanford and then worked in a high-tech company that did fast math processing chips that were part of the digital revolution. So I'm like, I'm not like a casual, oh, I kind of think this. You know, like I, I really do know. And all that stuff should just be outsourced to your smartphone. You know, like all these low-level procedures. You know, the issue is, that they are all low-level procedures that lead into the problems on the ACT or the SAT or state-mandated test. And so people get nervous about that. But then ultimately, it's just such an interesting choice about, you know, if we just said, let kids learn how to use their smartphone, Photomath or Wolfram Alpha, we get rid of grade 7 through 12 math, we could replace it with all these things that would be amazing career openers for them. I mean, just boost them into amazing careers, help them be more informed citizens, help them with personal decision-making. And the only reason we don't, right, is inertia and people's fear that it might cost them 100 points on an SAT exam. And, and then I say, well, why do you want them to get better SAT scores? And they say, well, to get into a better college. And I say, why do you want them to get into a better college? 
and they say, well, to get a better job. I say, supposing they can learn stuff in grades 7 through 12 that would get them a far better job than they'll get out of college. Why take all these indirect paths to get to this, quote unquote, better job that often is a job the kid really doesn't even care about or want to have? You talked about the system, about leverage points. So we're we're obviously in, a, in an era of disruption, automation. I wanted to ask you, what do you think of school networks like New Tech, uh, New Tech Network, Big Picture Learning? Are they potential leveraging points that are going to help change schools? Uh, what, what do you think? Well, I love the work of some of these these groups of schools. I mean, I think they're doing really interesting work. Um, you know, but I, I also feel at a certain level, you know, that w- when we talk about success cases measured in hundreds of schools, I'd say the same thing about the charter school movement. You know, it's been at it for 27 years in the U.S. They educate today maybe 4% of our kids. Out of that 4%, you know, let's say 1% are getting bad deals, 2% are getting kind of more, you know, not much different from a public school even one that's not thinking in a forward way, and 1% get a pretty good deal. You know, if we're talking about a tiny little dense in the overall student population measured in decades, you know, that's too many kids being left left behind. And so I'm really focused on how do we help all schools transform themselves? Because I think that's the single biggest challenge, the biggest opportunity in education. How do you help an existing school change and what I find interesting is when I visit, meet with people involved with schools of education, you know, even highly regarded, amazing, quote unquote, amazing, that's definitely quote unquote, amazing schools of education. I'll ask them, do you have a course on how do you transform an existing school? I've yet to find one. I say, do you think it's interesting that what I think a lot of people would agree with me, but what I certainly believe is the single most important challenge in education is how to help an existing school change. And nobody offers a course on that. I mean, you're like, what are we doing? Well, how are we setting these priorities? And so, so with the playlist, with the work I do, with you know the books I write and the, and the the films I back, I'm really focused on how can we provide helpful, suggestive resources to the change agents in a school, and they all there always are change agents to help them basically create conditions in their school that let that school advance itself in a way that works for that school. Not copy this school, not wait for the directive from the college board or the U.S. Department of Education or the Greek Department of Education. You know, like in your own way, create the kind of school you'd be really proud of that works for the families, for the kids that are attending and that trust and respects the roles of teachers to do what they enter the profession to do, which is to engage and inspire young kids. So just keeping with this this theme of uh, you know changing schools, you know startups very well. You used to uh, work with startups for the past, for twenty years. I'm also fascinated by startups. We operate our company as a startup uh, with lots of technology and a remote team. What do you think? What kind of start traits from startups do you think, if any, schools need to get inspired by to 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 trigger change, to help those change makers in, in schools? Well, I think there's actually, and I, I'm always leery of applying business perspectives to education. You know, I think the whole free market choice movement just missed, you know, important aspects that drive the entire world of education. So, so with that qualifier, 
I'll back up and say, what's something we know about people? What's something about humans that applies to both? And what do we know? We know that if people have a voice in what they want to do, if they're working on something that they can explain to themselves and others why it's important, you know, why, why they have this genuine sense of purpose in what they're doing, and, and they're supported to go at it in their own creative ways, those are the, t- the times people do remarkable things. And in the world of startups, that's all that happens, right? I mean, you're, these are mavericks who just say, I see a world that needs to be changed. I see an opportunity to create something new that, while deeply disruptive, will be ultimately quite beneficial. And I'm going at it. I'm going at it full force, and nobody's going to stop me. And I think when you see schools where the conditions are set up that basically empower students and teachers to have that same mindset, you see amazing things. When teachers feel trusted to create innovative learning experiences, many, many will. I mean, I write a whole book about these things I saw all over the country in every state with these remarkable things teachers are doing. And you know, interestingly, when I ask them, where did the idea come from? Not one of them said, oh, I saw it somewhere else. I read about it in a book or you know, somebody told me I had to do it. It was something they felt was really important to do. And somebody had their back. A principal, a superintendent sort of said, go for it. I trust you. It won't be perfect the first time, but stay with it because I think you're going to create something remarkable. I could say the exact same thing about students. You know, Yet, how many students can go 12, 14, 16 years of of K through 12 in college and never really be challenged to create something distinctive, something that they feel is a, you know, and it's an overworked word, but a a unique contribution to a field of study or to making the world better. Something that they just say, this has my fingerprints all over it. It's important. People need to see it and benefit from it. And I'm doing it. And yet, you can graduate from an awful lot of colleges all around the world and have never once done that. You know, not in elementary. Maybe you did it in kindergarten, you know, but, but by the time when we get serious about school, when somebody says, we know better than anybody else what fundamentals kids need to learn. So we're going to lay that out in, you know, mountains of prescribed curriculum. And then kids are just, pl- you know, just plop it on a kid's desk and, or in a teacher's inbox and say, teach this or learn this. You know, why do we expect kids to spring into life? Why do we expect teachers to have that bounce in their step when they feel like they're getting to do what they enter the profession to do? I think it's a failure of top-down central planning education. And I think it misses not just learning issues, but I think it misses what makes us human. And I like what you said about just just allowing students to to create, and I was I was thinking about this quote in one of your videos from Larry Rosenstock, and one of the videos in your playlist, where he said it very nicely. He says, "You know, there's nothing more something. I'm paraphrasing. There's nothing more exciting of from like a student just creating something that didn't exist. Yeah, creating something new that didn't exist before. You know, and then telling, sharing it with other people, and taking pride in what you did. And and you know we." We rarely assess kids that way, and yet look at the motivation when a kid is taking on something that they had a voice in creating, recognizing that down the road, you know, they're going to be presenting it to other people, explaining why they're proud of what they did and and how they thought it up and what they did to make it happen. That's incredibly motivating for kids. And when they do these creative, distinctive initiatives, 
it can be assessed by informed, caring, thoughtful adults, can be assessed by classmates, but it can't be boiled down into a single number. And yet, what do we do? We, we let the data needs of the, of the number-crunching bureaucrats drive what we do in our classrooms instead of really playing to the intrinsic motivation and the, the desperate need we all feel to leave our own mark. We just sort of shove that aside and say, that doesn't matter. We've got to put the data needs first. And how many times do you hear it and I hear it? We all hear it. Well, we have to work with the data we have. And my response is, why? Why would you ever say that? If the data we have is tied to a standardized test that reflects exactly what machine intelligence is perfect at, why should we make that the central organizing principle of education policy? So, and and so many so many kids are being left behind, right? So many kids who have really great ways to contribute and make a difference get told daily in school that they aren't smart, that they're not gifted, that they're somehow lacking proficiency. And it's one of the reasons I, I am such a strong advocate for career technical education or hands-on learning is that that's a very different set of skills and capabilities that I think arguably are far more valuable in the real world than memorizing formulas and definitions. And yet, how many of those kids feel like they're kind of shuffled off to a backwater that, that's sort of a last resort for the kids that can't cut it instead of being in an environment where they're learning really important you know, competencies, learning how the real world works, getting good at something that actually gives them a big career advantage, finding things that fulfill them. You know, instead of making career academies the exception, why aren't they the rule? And why doesn't college admissions start to value real examples of student work instead of numbers on a test? If we got those two things right, these young kids in school would be kind of often running with amazing career prospects and 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 feeling up that sense of purpose from doing things that make your community better. I mean, the ultimate, you know, reflection of citizenship. So, so the audience of this of this podcast is interested in 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 growing their school. That's kind of the mission we we are we're focused on. Um, so, I want to steer the discussion a bit towards towards that. Even though I I, I strongly believe, and that's why I'm so interested in 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 your staff that. This is what a school needs to do to grow. Because if you have, again, using a business concept, if you have a good product, that's when you're going to grow. If you don't have a good product, you can't grow. But but you wrote something interesting. You said, we're too confident that parents make informed decisions about school. Most adults judge a school by its cover. How, you know, a, a, a school principal who wants to, to, to have their school to survive, to grow, how how do you suggest they go? Uh, you know, they go about that in 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 this world of school choice, where parents vote with their with their feet. Well, I, I think the opportunities are multiple opportunities. I, I often encourage, and and I think schools and educators have been slow to to do this. But if you have assessments you don't like, let's start piloting assessments we do like, and it can be as simple as things like. Polling students monthly, how excited are you to be in school right now? Uh, asking teachers regularly, how trusted do you feel to create interesting learning experiences? You know, do you feel like you have the time to really work with the kids that need your help? Do you, do you have opportunities to collaborate with other teachers? You know, we could get some ad, attitudinal results. You know, honestly, 
if a school were tracking student interest and the students went from being so-so about being in school at the beginning of the year to loving being in school at the end, you know, you tell me there's not a lot of learning going on there. There's an enormous amount of learning. And so the second thing, and I learned this from, uh, he was my co-author on a book we wrote together, Tony Wagner. But Tony absolutely opened my eyes up in terms of how to know what's going on in a school. And he said, unless you observe several different classrooms and know what to look for, you can be fooled time and again. And way back, I mean, I was absolutely fooled with, with schools that I visited, schools our kids went to, because, you know, you'll go to things. I'll, I'll tell you one example. I was at my own child. I was observing a class, and this was after I was, you know, like post the Tony Wagner boost in terms of perspective. And so I now knew what to look for. So I'm watching this class, and it's a small class, you know, one teacher, 12 students, an oak table you know, everybody around the oak table, teachers obviously very energized and knowledgeable, but the teacher is just asking these kids fact-based questions and the kids are checking their handouts, raising their hands, and the first one to get their hand up answers. And they just read off their handout and then they move to the next question. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this could not be worse. And I'm sitting next to somebody else who whispers to me and says, isn't this an amazing class? And I sort of turn to her and I say, well, actually it isn't. And she says to me, oh no, trust me. I know what's a great class. I'm a college professor. <laughs> and I said it all. That's what college professors think are great classes. I do all the talking. You listen to what I have to say. And you say back to me what I believe because I am the world-class expert in whatever, the mating habits of ants in Zimbabwe. And and you realize that even somebody who, in theory, is steeped in education, a college professor, actually has no clue as to what real learning is about. You know, that person hasn't read Academically Adrift. The only really great study done of whether kids, particularly kids in lecture classes, really learn anything that they retain. You know, the reality is they don't. You know, and I think that's another opportunity for schools. If you want to change the existing order, why not just do what I talk about in book and film, you know, this this really courageous school in, in New Jersey, Lawrenceville Academy, that retested their kids three months later to see what was retained. And, and when once you realize that most of what kids do in school is like writing an essay in the sand on a windy beach, and that three gusts later, it's gone, you know, then you say, like, they're working hard. They do fine on tests that Tests really are tied to short-term memorization capabilities, but they're not, they don't even know what they took last semester. I mean, is that a sign that we're really helping these kids? I think that would make you step back and say, whoa, wait a minute, we need to think differently about this. And I think that's an excellent way also to to just linking that back to school growth. If you if you start pulling your 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 students' attitudinal uh, um, assessment and then kind of show that and, and share that with the community and start seeing change in those numbers and share that with the community, that's going to make for a very interesting uh, community discussion and word of mouth is going to spread that you're, you're doing something differently. And, and that's where the, the exhibition nights, or they don't have to be at night necessarily, but where those exhibitions are so powerful is that parents, when a kid's excited to show what they've done and parents get a chance to see it and see other people stop by and talk to the kid, 
and see what the other kids are capable of doing. And, you know, they start to connect the dots and say, wait a minute, when they actually are creating something that they can share with others, you know, nobody's going to have an exhibition night around a multiple choice test, you know, right? That ain't happening. But when you're writing creative essays or you're doing interesting historical critiques or you're designing a science experiment or you're coming up with a creative math model to explain something in the in your world uh, you know a whole host of things and we show that in the film kids are more excited and they're very motivated when they know classmates parents friends random adults are going to be taking a look at it and and when a kid drops a ball and some will you know, it's like a lot of kids, they get a bad score on a test and it's sort of a sign of rebellion. So screw it. You know, I hate school. school. School's dumb. I'm going to show them I'll get a 61 and I don't care. When they had a chance to really invent or create something, bringing their voice to that project, and they really just ducked it and didn't do anything good, and then they got to explain it to a bunch of people, that is like, whoa, that gets... You want to talk about a lesson learned, that is it. And without giving out too much, there's a great example of that in the in the film as well. Absolutely. You know, and I can relate to it. I mean, I don't know if people are interested, but I in middle school I did a science experiment and it was a science project. And I, I did something on hydroponics where, you know, I I researched and got the chemicals that the water base had to be in and got a mesh screen and got sawdust and figured out the right plants and kind of was able to get some some things to actually grow pretty well. So it was not a great project, but it wasn't a bad project. And then the day of the science fair, I, I got the, the town was just wiped out with a big blizzard. So the science fair got put off for six weeks. And, and six weeks later, all the plants had died. And I wasn't smart enough to restart the experiment. I just sort of thought they'll be fine. I probably lost my focus on it and didn't take as much care of them. Well, you know, there's nothing quite like sitting in front of a bunch of people with a tub of dead plants behind you <laughs> having to say, oops, you know, and it's like, oh, my gosh, you're like, did I learn a lot from that? I learned a ton from that. And it was honestly humiliating, but but really pushed me to say, I'm not doing that again in school. You know, I, I am not going to repeat that. That was a really painful three hours for me. And it was, a, you know, using your term, it was a peak experience. So you remember it, uh, you know, many years later. <laughs> yeah, many years, way too many, way too many years later. So I have a last question. I, I, it's my, my, it's important, an important question for me. I'm very interested in this. So you like the phrase, change happens slowly, right until it happens quickly. So the question is this. So do you see or do you do you hope there are any trends right now uh, out there that just might create you know a tipping point like like Uber did or Facebook or you know exponential trends that are going to pounce on us in a in a positive way you know it could be work that's being done and you know you referenced Vermont or New Hampshire um you I know you you're in favor of the mastery transcript consortium that might change the game with the with the universities um, are there any of these like uh, bright spots? And obviously, we cannot know, but you feel might be, you know, what we call a tipping point that might suddenly create massive change. Yeah, I'm. I'm uh, keeping in mind, but Sunday night is the the start of the last series of Game of Thrones, and so I rewatched the end of season seven, and you know, like for sure, education could use that 
fire-breathing dragon that melts the wall and it just crumbles right in front of her eyes in about 30 seconds. That would be nice. But I feel like, you know, as I see schools, as I see districts, I do a lot at the state level in several states, you know, where a large number of schools suddenly feel they're operating in a world where they're supported to do more innovative things. I think the more those happen, the more, you know, innovation is contagious. Would I say we've we're squarely in the change happening quickly phase? No. But I feel like we're kind of edging our way from the change happens slowly point to it's it's starting to see seem a lot better. And when you start to see uh, you know, kids create alternative paths, you know, besides four-year college to doing great things, I think that's exciting. When you see, sadly, but you see a kid that did everything right that's 25 years old, old no job living at home, at least there's sort of a a, a bit of a proof point that says no path is risk-free. Um, college admissions, I think the college admissions scandal has delivered a huge wake-up call to everybody about, you know, like, does any of this make sense? And, uh, you know, and I think the, the other thing I think it's fair to say is that the kind of the test and measure accountability crowd, the no excuses crowd, I sense they're just tired. You know, they've tried for 25 years. They have nothing to show for it other than demoralized teachers and unprepared kids. I mean, you know, I'm glad for anybody that tries hard to help education, and, and many of them tried hard. But I mean, you know, it was just a bad idea. And I think they're starting to say, whoa, maybe maybe there is a different way. And so I think that gives all of us an opportunity to stand for a much bolder vision of what education, what school could be. I think we've got really great opportunities. And I think if we can start putting in action a change process in school after school after school that respects the role of teachers in leading the way, that is based on small steps that build confidence, that begin to transfer the learning to the student and connect the learning to the real world, if we're successful in that, you know, there's a tipping point we're, I, I hope, getting close to. Uh, that's that's great. That's a very positive message, and I, I can't but agree with you. And we're we're seeing a lot of change happening, and hopefully, this will turn into a snowball effect, like it's happened in other places, and like it's happening, you know, all over the world in different industries. So, thanks again for all the stuff, everything you do for schools, and uh, you know. We'll, we'll try and help in our own little way. You, you, you do great work, so I'm deeply appreciative for what you're doing. Thanks so much, Ted. Thank you. Take Bye. care. Yep. Thank you for listening to School Growth Mastery, brought to you by Enrollhunt. If you like what you heard, please do subscribe to our show and share this episode with your fellow educators. You can support us by leaving us a positive review on iTunes or your preferred podcasting app. That way, more school leaders like you will find us. If you want to learn more about school growth, visit our website at enrollhand.com and please do check out the links in the show notes of this episode. Until next time, goodbye for now.